Hello, and welcome to Say That, the podcast for your big questions, get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago, and joining me here is Glenn Fitzgerald, the president of Mission USA. I'm hopped up on steroids and muscle relaxers. It's uh, just to balance each other out. Yeah, just just to see what happens. I assume you mean an- anabolic steroids, so you're looking to get jacked, but <laughs> yep. very re- in a very relaxed way. <laughs> exactly right. A, a really j- relaxed, <laughs> but jacked at the same yeah, time. Yeah. Just hang cleaning, 400 pounds, but super chill about it. That's yeah. right. That's yeah. Absolutely. Also joining us, Jed Brewer, the director of Mission USA Productions. Is there a risk of you going into a roid rage? Very, very high risk of that. But sort of a mellowed out rage. A totally sure. like, like, very man, chill rage. that's like your stupid face, man. Yeah. yeah. That kind yeah. of yeah. Sure. Not cool, bro. Not cool, yeah. bro. I do like the idea of somebody getting prescribed prednisone and just through the uh, you know the power of suggestion, just going into a roid rage. <laughs> right, yeah, just not knowing. <laughs> yeah, it. just in traffic. <laughs> yeah. uh, Your Honor, I'm sorry, I want steroids. Uh, that's not the kind of steroid that that is, Mr. Johnson. Okay. Well, you may notice that not joining us is Lee Younger. He's normal co-host, one of the pastors of Christ Community Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and he's currently gallivanting the globe. I believe right now he is... Uh, in the air over the Atlantic Ocean on his way to Spain. Mm-hmm. Kind of at us, but yep. uh, we're gonna we're not bitter is the main thing. Right. No. We're not jealous. No, not we're just gonna all. carry on in his stead. Right. Are we under protest though? You know what? Um I noticed when I was missing recently yeah. that Lee wasn't very much under protest. Wow. Wow, okay. So uh you know, I don't know if that's entirely necessary. Wow. I see how it is. See what I'm saying? Okay. Okay. This is what happens when you get on the roids. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> you just... It's more animal than man. That's right. That's right. Very relaxed, but still, yeah. you know, very, you know. Okay. Uh, on that basis, I declare a very roided out but mellow emergency. I'm feeling both of those as you're declaring it. Wow. Okay, here's what we're dealing with. Um, several times on this podcast we've mentioned... That Matt is single. That doesn't sound familiar. Yeah, I think we have to me. discussed it a few times. That okay. Matt, I mean, Matt if is you say single. so. On the podcast, at the bridge, just in normal conversations, in college lecture halls, as yeah. you're doing guest speaking gigs, mm-hmm. visiting churches. Mm-hmm. It comes up a lot, is what I'm saying. Wait, Matt is single? Matt is, as it turns out, single. Oh, I had no idea. And I've We just had... got the test back, and yeah, it turns out, <laughs> single. <laughs> Here's the thing is, uh, I just can't have that. Sure. It's offensive. Yeah. Uh, you you do see it as a personal attack. That's yeah. not a bit for the podcast. That's just true. That's right. Now, we have urged the people on the internets to date Matt. Right. Because why would you not? You think you're better than Matt? Do you? You are, but it's rude to point it out. <laughs> <laughs> but so, well, this is the problem we have. It's like, you know, people aren't responding quite in the way that we would hope. Sure. Or at all. Or at all. So here's what, here's what I got to thinking. Jed, yeah, is and I think it's appropriate we discuss this with Lee not here. It's sure. almost assuredly not appropriate. I started racking my brain. What could it be? Because it's not Matt. Matt's amazing. Absolutely, he's, he's delicious. Sure, absolutely, he's wonderful. Sure, Matt is decidedly above average <laughs> and has many years of test scores and diagnoses to prove as such. He uh, a solid C plus. He, he he's a snappy dresser. Sure, that's true. He has a beard. Just you would. You just 
going to get lost in his beard. Sure, absolutely. Or, or People say that. Mostly you and Jed, which is disconcerting, but they say it. <laughs> okay, so here's what I'm saying. Tell me. Okay, here's my philosophical point of view. I, in a, when you date Matt, when a person dates Matt in a very real, in a very substantive way, he's a dating. A few brave souls have tried. Those people who date Matt in a very real and substantive way are dating all of us. Now, that's true. Okay. Okay. Now. Now, you, I think you need to point out that you, you don't mean in like an all of humanity kind of hippy-dippy way. You're specifically referring to you and Jed. That's right. Um, now, uh, she, she, this gal, whoever she is, right. potentially, would not be offended by anything that Lee would do or say. That's true. He's a lovely person. He really is. It can't be anything wrong with Matt because Matt is perfect uh, marriage material. Couldn't agree more. Okay. So that puts it down to you and me. That that reveals nothing other than your low standards for male marriage material, but go ahead. Yeah. Glenn, you're suggesting that you and I are offensive in a way that is driving women from Matt just because they don't want to have to deal with us. Correct. Okay. Well, that that does track. That does make good sense. When you look at it, the logic just lines up perfectly. It's true. Well, I really don't like you guys being right about such things, but I will say that there is a pattern here. Tell me. uh, When Jed got married and was dating his his lovely wife, Allie, there were certain behaviors and thoughts and opinions that came up. Right. To which the question was posed, where did you even get that? Yeah. And Jed, almost every time, what was the answer? Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So here's... Glenn is known to be a corrupting influence. No question about it. Yeah. I'm a terrible, terrible, terrible influence. And you corrupted Jed, and now you're both corrupting me. I'm getting it just double dose. This yeah, double is, corruption. Somebody has to stop it. Well, I'm thinking, you know what? If the problem is me and Jed, let's make a list. Sure. And then we'll start working on it. Makes perfect sense. So I jotted some ideas down, and I okay. figure we can discuss okay. it. Because okay. you're nothing if not solutions-oriented. That's my whole thing, okay? Hit me. Number one, monkey toes. Okay, this is, is a this fact. Is this about the thing you wanted to eat, monkey? No, 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 oh. no, no, no. I this, hope that's its own bullet point. Mon- monkey, monkey toes is uh, the absolute anatomically correct fact that Jed has the toes of a monkey. That's definitely true. I really do. Now, do you, do you maybe think that poli- people of polite society would be more put off by your insistence on discussing Jed's toes than really the toes themselves? I got chimp feet. There's no lie about it. They're hairy. Yes. He could potentially hang upside down by his toenails, gripping the bark. That is true. And uh, he will wear a flip-flop and, and without, uh, you know what I'm saying. I'm not concerned about it at all. This is the, And this is the problem. They yeah. don't care. Simeon and proud. We, we have to think of Matt now. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so we may need to think of as the sock-based solution. Can I wear socks and sandals? I think it must. That's a. That's I've heard it's very fashionable. I think that's the way to go. Okay, welcome to three what middle-aged white men discuss fashion. <laughs> okay, so we so that's that's Up next. How pale should your jeans be? <laughs> well, you you laughed. That's on my list. Intimidated by our fashion knowledge. Yeah. Because yeah. we on the podcast we have a lot of fashion tips. We do. Sure. We, we got t- opinions. We talked about can you pull off a smoky eye. This is true. We we announced before anybody espadrilles were going to be in this year. It's That's true. true. And they've been in. Yes, they year. have. People have technically been wearing them. So you're welcome. Yeah. Okay. Now maybe somebody wants to date Matt, but feels like I'm not 
fashionable enough. Sure. See what I'm saying? Sure. So we have to, to be more inclusive. That's okay. true. As we record, Glenn is wearing flip-flops, but they're Lacoste flip-flops. Oh, very snazzy. I like your yeah. alligator. Yeah, that's uh, that was those are birthday shoes. That's right. Uh, okay, so we have to do something about sure, that. Sure, absolutely. For example, when we give a fashion tip, for example, we could say, you could wear high-waisted shorts if you want to be out of fashion. Sure. That's a valid choice for you to make. Sure. Okay, now you're taking on Taylor Swift on the internet, and that's not really <laughs> going to turn out well for us. If, if you're wearing them ironically, well, then okay. Then okay. So this, see, we can be more subtle with that. Sure, absolutely. So that's, uh, um, here's another thing, just throwing it out. Jed has a lovely wife named Hallie. Uh, she's of uh, Germanic descent, and hmm. our extensive Nazi jokes directed at her <laughs> might be a little off-putting for someone who hangs around us. Now, here's the thing. If Hallie was in some way a Nazi-like person, yeah. then that would be, uh, uh, you know... Uh, uh, That's an extra layer to the humor, it, though. It, it, so pleasant. It would be cruel, but it would be accurate. It, it, in this case, it's funny because she's the nicest person there is. Yeah. Now, I'd like to take a moment to address you, dear listener. Yeah. There, uh, we, we, we like to have fun in the emergency segment. Sure. Japes and mm-hmm. whatnot. Yes. Uh, you may think to yourself, wow, that's a, that's a funny joke. Glenn floating that hypothetical premise that maybe these these three people like two or three times maybe we've made nazi jokes yeah tease you know one of the the <laughs> the person people dearest to them in the world who right. they think the highest of right. who just happens to have a certain ethnic heritage and tease her about just really awful things right this happens every week yeah it's true it's <laughs> completely true and about one out of two meals. <laughs> we, that's right. I don't. Do we we had one meal where there were a uh, 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 German. Uh, uh, what do you call it? German sausages, the uh, Wiener Schnitzel, or sure. whatever. Oh, yeah. uh, oh that's right. Halle creates uh, wonderful dishes for us, right? And German desserts and strudels and whatnot. Right. And we repay that kindness by mocking the darkest chapter in her ethnic heritage. <laughs> right. So she. We made a joke about you can't put the. The wiener schnitzel next to the uh, Polish sausages because it will jump over on the plate and yeah, take sure. over. And it, yeah. It's a whole, it's it's pretty much nonstop. It's like having dinner with Jeremy Clarkson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except you can't pause it. But it, this is the thing is some people might find that off-putting. Sure. So, I can't imagine who, but but someone might. It, it, pretty much uh, anybody who's not us, as we've learned. Uh, when occasionally we're having dinner with a larger group and let something slip. <laughs> Right. And there's horrified stares. Oh, oh gosh! Right. Think of the children. I have a couple more, but I want you guys to jump in. Sure. These are just my ideas. Absolutely. So I'm absolutely. open for other input, and maybe you know, maybe Matt has some ideas, given he's the victim here. That's uh, the truest thing we said so far. The, the next one I wrote down was vulgarity. Sure. I I don't know what that is. Uh, it's how we are all the time. Pretty so much. vulgarity means like holy and upright and like no, just uh, naughty little potty humor. That and, doesn't ring a bell know, to me. That kind of you know that uh, group message thread the three of us are on that no. will be fired, <laughs> no, and driven from polite society if it ever gets out. It's what's on that. <laughs> yeah, we can't. That one's so bad we can't even tell them what the subject of yeah, it was. Can. Well, so, you can't pick just one. That's right. 
It's going back about four solid years at this point of just awfulness. There's every one of the ladies involved in this ministry at one time or another has just been shocked out of her mind yeah. because something vulgar that we have said or done. Yeah, that's true. Just, yeah. just, just they could not wrap their mind around that happening. Well, yes. wh- while we're on the subject of how much better the ladies who are in this ministry are than us, and it's significant. Oh yeah, we were off on some horrible, just horrible tangent, or we were kind of the sub- a subject was broached. And uh, Miss Tasha, who uh, she and her husband Pete are on staff with us, lovely, Tasha's great, uh, a wonderful person, and she just had a vision of where this conversation was going to go and said one of my favorite sentences ever, which is at the dinner table, looks around at the three of us degenerates and says out loud, well, to intentionally change the subject. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And then just started right. talking about a nice thing. That's yes. right. That's right. That's the kind of skills you have to have to be around here. That's the, Yes. Uh, another side note on, on Miss Hallie, uh, she's a decorated war veteran. This yes. is an actual true thing. She's an American hero. We yes. all think she's unbelievably awesome for that. But uh, she's re- related this, and I, I, I know a lot of people who have served that have had similar experiences where people kind of get um, a little weird, a little inappropriate, a little creepy, a little overly uh, sincere and earnest at them. Particularly around specific uh, nation-related holidays. Yeah. So, you know, so uh, so Jed started a, a tradition of going up to his wife and saying... Uh, Thank you for your service. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, what... Now we do that for basically any holiday. <laughs> yes, and we, it just gets creepier every. <laughs> Thank you for your service. Uh, yeah, now it started out as a Fourth of July thing, a Veterans Day thing. Then the joke became we would all do it on Memorial Day, which obviously is specifically to remember people who lost their lives in military service. Right. So that would be language. Thank you for your service. And Hallie, not realizing the bit yet, trying to explain that's Nuts. what Memorial Day is. That's Veterans Day. And now you get Christmas. St. Patrick's Day. St. Patrick's Day. Halloween. Your right. Arbor. I believe there was... I honestly think there was an Arbor Day. Thank you for your service. Yeah. yeah. yeah Arbor we, Day fell on a Tuesday at one point. Right. And, it's, and, and we're... It, it, to an outside observer, it might appear that we're mocking that she did serve our <laughs> yes. country with honor, which we're not, but it, it would look that way. And in fact... This is true. An hour later, an hour earlier, excuse me, we were upstairs having dinner, and <laughs> Hallie was talking about someone she knows who is a circus performer, because, right. of course, she knows someone who's a circus performer. Yeah. And uh, they were discussing life and international politics and all sorts of other things. And uh, at some point, uh, Matt's contribution yeah. of being involved in this discussion and, and interested and wanting to ask questions about this fun and exciting relationship that she has with this gal, asked Hallie, did you ask this gal, thank you for your circus? <laughs> <laughs> and and I stand by that joke. Yeah, it's good. That's a good bit. And so that's the level of commitment. The level of discourse we're dealing with. So that's, you know. uh, Then this is the last uh, thing I have written down. And I want to hear from you guys. Pinwheeling. I I don't think I know how that's. Now, are you referring to our ability to just make up things? Our ability to then use the things we've made up in everyday conversation as if they weren't things we made up? Or the actual fact that we're all so tired all the time that occasionally there will be. 
a full 20 seconds of silence while while our brain catches up to the conversation. All of that. Sure. Okay, those sure. are all ac- accurate and valid. Pen, pen, I'm just pinwheeling, dude. Sure. I don't really know what it means. But you are. But I, yeah. you know why I can't tell what pinwheeling means? Because you're pinwheeling. Because it's not exactly. a thing? Exactly. I'm yep. pinwheeling. You so know. basically, I mean, just to, to kind of summarize, here's what I'm hearing you describing. Here here are kind of the the uh, trials that a potential would it would it still be a suitor? Would it be a suitress? Paramore. I don't, know, I don't think uh, that's. I super don't think that's it. All right. Um, well, a lady admirer. Sure. Sure. But you know, a potential Mrs. Matt. The thing right. that they the things they have to deal with is. Um, Can we call her Mrs. Matt when she eventually <laughs> arrives on the scene? It's Matt and sure. Mrs. Matt. <laughs> I think that, that, I think whatever that situation turns out to be, anonymity will probably be a big part of it on her part. Yeah, yeah. So the things that she has to you over- don't want to publicly associate with this group. Right. The things that basically she has to deal with is living in a nonstop emergency segment. Right. Yeah, that's, that's actually right. what we're describing. Is right. it's an emergency segment that just never ends. Yeah, it's it's cute for ten minutes, and but you know for life it's. Rough. I think this is absolutely right, and it's the best description I can give people because we have people who listen to the podcast, lovely people who right. will say, you know, I wish I. Could and come and see the bridge and see what you guys do. And we've actually had a couple of people. We've had a bride from New Zealand, Adam from uh, Florida, and we've had some other people plotting on it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm gonna, if I'm, I'm going to be, might be in Chicago for a business thing at some point. If it's mm-hmm. Tuesday, I love, and we love having those people. It's great. But I think for those of you who will never make it to Chicago, and we hope, and we hope you all do. Absolutely. Right. Um, the best description I can give of being around the three of us in normal life is that Tuesday, which is when we have our bridge service, from about 7 to 9.30, is like the advice part of the podcast. Right, yeah. Right. The, also, Sunday afternoons when we do our jail chapel service. Right, so those two right, spots right. are basically the the wisdom and the getting into it and the figuring things out. Everything else is basically an emergency segment. That's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. That's that's a fair assessment. I like that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit tough to deal with. So if you feel like you've got what it takes to be Mrs. Matt, given yep. all of that, yep. send your letters to P.O. Box 316, Fort Park, Illinois, 6130. Care of Matt King. Actually, don't make them care of Matt King. He no. will he will sabotage this process. Let's make it stealthy. Yeah. Care of, I want to marry Matt King on the down low. Yes. Boom. See yeah. I did that. Well, that works for me. Yeah, that won't draw like, any attention. Uh, Putting the word down low on the outside of an envelope being shipped to Chicago won't draw <laughs> any attention. I feel like, you know, I feel like we've we've covered a lot of important ground. Absolutely. Uh, let's, let's wear socks. Yes. Sure. Let's keep it. A little less vulgar. Sure. Uh, which should be easy. Sure. We Any just, progress is progress. We could talk less. Absolutely. That would when cut you're down at the bottom of the well, anywhere is up. Yeah. And, uh, you know, let's not be so intimidating with our, our uh, knowledge of fa- fashion. You know, high, right. high uh, haute couture fashion. Makes you know? perfect sense to me. You know, keep it a little more pret-a-porter. Absolutely. So that's, I think that's Good where we're going to start. Yeah. That, I think, so on that basis, I declare a, now it's okay to marry Matt Emergency. Sure. Off. Sorry. I'm a little out of it. You're sure. all right. You know why? Because you're juicing. I'm juicing. juicing. Yeah. Big time. Yeah, he's a juicer. <laughs> he doesn't care about any of the rules anymore. That's right. <laughs> Barry Bonds of podcasting. In many ways. Yeah. All right, we're going to move on. But first, we're going to talk about Bridgebox because, Ooh. as I mentioned, um, we, we get into a lot of shenanigans up here. <laughs> but uh, one thing, one of the few things we take very seriously outside of the bridge in this podcast is Bridgebox. We put in a lot of work. There's sermons, there's songs, there's devotionals. This 
month's topic is why should I be vulnerable? Yes. August 2016. Very cool topic. So we have Glenn preaching on that, me preaching on that. And if you have never stood in front of a room of recovering addicts and ex-cons said, hey, guys, let's talk about getting vulnerable. Yeah. <laughs> I recommend it. Uh, we've got songs that uh, Jed has written, that our, uh, Lee has written. If you want to get some extra Lee in your life, it's a great way to do it. We have a uh, guest devotional from a friend of ours who's an expert in addiction, John Ross, works for a program called Teen Challenge Chicago. So that's the kind of stuff we want to give you. We want to give a lot of different perspectives, different stories, and a lot of cool stuff to help you move forward in your walk. The most important part is it's the easiest way for you to support the work we do up here in Chicago, behind bars and on the street, and getting folks jobs, getting them housed, moving them on their walk, plugging them into the local church. You can do all that for only $8 a month. If you want to check out what that's all about, you can go to missionusa.com slash bridgebox. All right, move to our first question here. If you hang on with us all the way to the end, I'll give you some ways you can get in touch with us. First question comes in anonymously to our Tumblr inbox, and it says, What does it mean to be a godly man? How do I stop being a child but become a man of God? What are the characteristics, qualities, and pursuits that I should be exhibiting? That's a really fantastic question, and really, it was, as our we have a lot of sharp people listen to the show, as our friends often do, uh, that last sentence is the exact thing you should be asking. What are the mm. specific characters and qualities and things I should do to kind of get on this this journey to being a man of God? And before we jump into it, I will, of course, say that pretty much everything we're going to say applies across gender lines. We're talking about growing mm-hmm. the Lord. That's, that's right. not that's not a gendered thing, but if we slip into talking about a man of God, that's because, A, it's what was asked, and B, that's actually a phrase that is used in the neighborhood mm-hmm. and used in our mm-hmm. mission field. They, they don't really care about pastor or bishop, but if you are someone like Glenn who goes in the neighborhood and gives them a good word, they, the title they assign you is man of God. That's so right. That's kind of in our lexicon, but with those uh, caveats out of the way, Glenn, why don't you start us off here? Well, yeah, I think uh, we've talked recently a bit about, um, you know, sort of uh, some of those gender roles within relationships, but sort of building off of that, I think uh, first and foremost, uh, if you want to be a, a man of God uh, or a woman of God, all of this really will apply across gender lines. But the main thing for a man of God is to be someone who's an uplifter and yeah. an, an equipper. Uh, I think so much of the uh, the thought or the mentality is uh, I need to be uh, the, the big shot. I need to be the name of the billboard. I need to be whatever. And I have to gather people around me who agree with that. Now, the funny thing is, uh, you know, I talk to a lot of pastors, and, you know, the the first thing they'll tell me is, hey, I don't care about numbers. The second thing they tell me is, hey, this isn't all about me. And then they spend the next 30, 40 minutes telling me about numbers and about them. Yep. And how, how the numbers are a reflection on them, either the, positive or negative. <laughs> exactly right. So uh, I don't think we're very honest about that either. And I think uh, that imprints on us a bit as lay people as well. I mean, we pick up on that sense of, uh, you know, I, I need to gather people around me who can help me, you know, be all I can be and so on and so forth. Uh, but for me, the the first thing I was told to do when I went into ministry is put yourself out of a job. Always be lifting up that person who can do what you can do, and, and you multiply yourself through that person, and they go out and they do it. Um, by doing that, you you radically increase the amount of ministry that you can get done. But I I would take that same approach uh, as a as a father. I would take the same approach. Do take the same approach as a husband. My job is to build into other people in my house uh, and and uh, lift them up and find out 
what's their giftedness mm -hmm. and how do I help them realize that? How do I help them make that manifest? That's the whole thing. So I think that's first and foremost. Uh, I think uh, uh, being grown, whether it be a man or a woman, is about handling re your responsibilities. Yeah. And you got to know, mm -hmm. okay, um, here's what I need to be doing, and here's here's me going after it. I think you know the problem that we have uh, these days, and, and we may get into this in in, uh, in this other question, but I think there's a there's a tendency to see being a good student as sort of a template that we'll use to handle everything else in life. If I'm a if I'm good if I'm a good student then I'll be a good employee, I'll be a good dad, I'll be a good Christian, I'll be a good whatever. Mm. And actually that really does not hold up at all. Yeah. You know. Yeah, there's a certain amount of diligence and follow through and 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 being responsible to being a good student. But there's a whole lot that just doesn't cross over, you know. In, in other words, I think being, a, for example, a good parent is about being able to adapt to changes in your in your child and do different things when one thing isn't working. So, uh, you know, that's what they always tell athletes: is good athletes always make changes and adjustments in order to maintain the same level of, of proficiency. Well, it's the same thing in, in our relationships. We have to, uh, we have to grow and, and adapt, and uh, there isn't any of that to being in, in that academic environment. That's, you just do the same exact mechanism over and over and over again, and there's no uh, necessarily any growing there. It's just head knowledge. And the last thing I'll tack on, and I'll kick it over to, to Jed, is uh, the, the Bible tells us that uh, that uh, we're 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 meant to be ready to answer to people when they ask us, you know, why why do you believe what you believe, and why do you have the hope and the faith that you have? But the Bible says that we're meant to do that with two things: one is gentleness, and the other is respect. Yeah. And um, I think uh, there's uh, there's a, there's a certain move uh, movement within Christianity that we've been tracking. Of a macho yep. attitude uh, in um, in church stuff, challenging challenging parishioners who disagree with you to Bible fights. Yeah, literal thing a mega church <laughs> pastor did on stage. Yeah, it's you know uh, no, I think uh, some of that is an overreaction to sort of a uh, sort of a milk toasty kind of watered down church culture that had had developed uh, earlier on. But it, it, none of that is gentleness. Yeah, on either side. On either side, and it's and none of it is respectful at all. If I respect you, I'm going to confront you often enough where you don't think of me as a nice person. You might think of me as a good person, a healing person, a person you can trust. You don't think of me as nice. That's not the first word that's going to come out of your mouth because that's a guy who's every now and then sitting you down and saying you got to not do that anymore mm -hmm. and i don't care if you stop writing checks i'm talking about what's right for you you know that mm -hmm. kind of thing so i think it's the same thing uh in the household uh, uh showing that uh, gentleness and that respect as a man to to the ladies in your life uh, showing that to to other men and and uh, as i hand this off i think we have to be aware that there's a really low amount of respect that happens within the church yeah, I mean they would, they would, they would, uh, particularly in the suburban church, uh, and that's really where most of it, uh, most of the lack of respect is. 
uh, in the suburban church, they would say, well, we don't disrespect anybody there. We're nice to everybody. But uh, uh, a lack of disrespect or an abundance of niceness does not add up to actual respect. So. No doubt. Oh, that's absolutely right. And Jed, if you could maybe handle for us, um, Glenn gave us a lot of good stuff there. And I think kind of he's talking about responsibilities, talking about handling uh, people with gentleness respecters. Something that all that all points to, which is really where you see the difference between the way an adult handles things and the way a child handles handles things, is when they come up against something they don't like. Mm-hmm. That's really the way we handle kind of adversity and problems is maybe one of the biggest areas in which kind of that's putting off childlike things and growing into an adult mindset of handling things. What's that adult mindset we should be looking for? It's a great question. I think the key thing to know is that adult people, regardless of gender, adult people face their problems head on. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't um, ignore their problems. They don't avoid their problems. They don't hide from their problems. And part of the reason for that is I think adult people recognize that life is a nonstop series of problems. It's not that life isn't beautiful because it is. It's not that life doesn't you know can't be filled with joy and happiness because it can be and it should be. But life is also a nonstop series of problems. And if you don't confront these problems, which no one wants to do, mm. we want to be clear, no, no one savors the act of confronting difficulties right, in their right, life. Right. But adult people recognize if I don't do that, the consequences will be something I really don't want to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a phrase that that we use around here, which is the cheapest price to pay is always right now. Mm-hmm. When it when it comes with dealing with problems in your life, uh, fixing you know weaknesses within yourself, the cheapest price to pay is always right now. Mm-hmm. Is getting on that today because uh, mm-hmm. it's going to be it's going to be harder a week from now. Uh, it's going to be right. much harder a year from now. Adult people admit when they have a problem and a weakness. Um, they confront that problem and that weakness, mm-hmm. and they actively work. And this is perhaps the most important important part on improving that area of mm-hmm. weakness. Mm-hmm. You know if you. If you hang around church stuff, you'll see what you'll see most people doing is pretending they have no problems. Mm-hmm. That's that's mm-hmm. the number one thing. That's that's the thing most people do. If you travel in certain circles, you will see people admitting, "No, I I got I got problems." You know, I'm I'm a sinner, same as everybody else, and that's a that's a good first step. And then, you know, in in kind of fewer cases still, you'll see people confront specific problems they have. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, no, I got a, I got a problem with my temper. I really do. It's mm-hmm. not just that I'm a sinner. I I've, I've got problems with with anger and with my temper. I, I really do, and that's. That's good. That's a step in the right direction. But what you see very few people do is say, I'm a sinner, same as anybody else. I have a specific problem with anger. I know that about myself. These are the steps that I am working to correct that deficiency within myself. Um, Maybe at the beginning, may not be going great, but exactly right. But I know what I need to do, and I'm on the way. Exactly, right. I am actively working to be a person who um, has their anger in control. Mm-hmm. Um, I may, for the rest of my life, have more givenness to anger and more givenness to um, losing my temper than most people do. But I'm going to work twice as hard as everybody else to get to a place where I have twice as much control mm-hmm. as anybody else, so that I'm able to live the life that God has for me. You see very, very few people in Christian culture doing that. But that's actually, really on a definitional level, that's what adult people do. Adult people say, this is an area of weakness in my life. This is a problem in my life. This is an area where I need to grow. Therefore, it's not just that I'm aware I have problems generally. It's not just that I'm confronting that I have this struggle specifically. I am a work in progress, actively taking steps to correct and change and work on this area of my life. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I'd love to take one more point because we have a little extra time so there's only the three of us and kick this back around. I'd love to get you guys to weigh on. So we have t- kind of two competing bi- biblical ideas here. One is obviously 
Paul says, when I was a child, I acted as a child, and I put off childish things to you know, become an adult. But there's also, you know, Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And I, I bring that up because I think it ties exactly into a lot of what Jed was talking about there in admitting and addressing problems. I think, how would we look at that kind of, I'm going to put the premise here and see if you guys agree with me and want to expand on it. There's something of the little children that is kind of, taking things as they come, and in this case, they're literally running to Jesus. Mm -hmm. There's something, um, I think what we get a lot of Christian culture is the uh, child trying on his dad's tie, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. is a lot of people behaving in the way they think adults should behave, which Mm -hmm. is a lot of not admitting problems, not focusing on them, looking for that artifice. So how do we balance out the maturity we're supposed to have with that kind of things that the world doesn't think of as maturity, but we need to get our heads around that I... That the idea that Christian maturity comes with more weaknesses, more mm-hmm. vulnerability, to go to the first question we're talking about, more kind of admitting problems. How does that help us be more adult as we approach them? It's a great question. I think the answer that kind of bridges those two ideas, very insightful question, is in a weird way, the answer is division of labor. Mm. Properly understood, the Christian life is one where you and God are a team. Mm-hmm. Okay, And God has certain roles within that team. And you have certain roles within that team. Let's return to the kind of the example of the anger problem for a second, all right? The um, uh, entering the kingdom as a little child means running to your savior and saying, I have a huge problem with anger and I have no idea what to do with it. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a mess and I'm causing messes and I'm causing problems and I, I, I need your help. I desperately need your help. I need you to help me change. I need you to help me grow. Then... We get wisdom from the Lord through scripture, through wise counsel from other believers, through listening to the voice of the Lord in prayer. We get direction and wisdom on the steps that we need to take as a part of God's solution to the problem Mm -hmm. that we're facing. An adult person then chooses one day at a time in God's strength to implement those steps that they have been given, Mm -hmm. right? If you are, you know, uh, Glenn brought up sports. If you're an athlete, it's not your job to know everything about physiology. That's your coach's job. Um, But it is your job when the coach designs a workout regimen for you to work those steps. Sure. It is your job, uh, and I I love, I actually get to use this phrase, Mm -hmm. it is your job to go to the gym and give 110%. That, that is your job. You know, the, the coach can't make you do that, won't make you do that. But you as a team put together, if you go to the gym and you give 110%, but you don't know what to give it on, you're just going to hurt yourself. You're not going to get anywhere. You won't, you won't see the kind of growth that you need to get. Sure. But if you get that wisdom and that direction and that ongoing guidance and you couple it with, okay, now I will, you know, handle my part of this, you can really go to amazing places. But I think that sense of division of labor is what is missing so often in people's um, understanding of this stuff. They want want to diagnose the problems themselves, mm-hmm. which is really you not letting God be gone. Well, they, it almost seems, they almost want to flip it. They want to do the diagnosis and let God do the fixing. Exactly right. That's, that's exactly, exactly right. right. Yes. Yep. That's 100% right. Yes. Yeah, I, I think exactly what Jed said. I think there's a sense of the more that I go to the Lord, the more I'm eventually going to acknowledge my deficiencies here, mm-hmm. that I just don't have what it takes. I don't have all the brains. I don't have all the whatever's. And um, th- then I'm given, uh, once I'm in, I, I, you know, I'm not going to receive much if I'm not in that state. If I, mm-hmm. if I say, well, I've got this, then I don't ask God for any help. I don't receive any help, and it's just me. And I'm going to tend to screw that up, and then I'm going to sit around and say, Nobody can handle my macho leadership. Yeah. 
they're intimidated by my macho leadership style, or yeah. I'm just so manly. It's the wussification the, of things is the, what it is. That's right. Actual thing another megachurch pastor wrote. <laughs> yes. But if we, by contrast, go to God in humility and say, I don't know, I don't have it. I'm, I'm just, a mess. I am a mess. I need help. I don't know what to say. And I need, Lord, you to tell me what the real problem is. That's right. You, Yeah, you have to diagnose it. You have to give me the solution. You have to tell me what I'm looking at. And all I want to do is be responsible to carry out what you tell me to carry out. Yeah. And I find I can be responsible with that because, you know, once, once the Lord says, here's the thing you should do, it's actually pretty hard not to do it at that point. I think a lot of us have a sense of I don't, you know, uh, 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 I'm going to avoid asking God for too much, too many details because then I'd have to to do it. Uh, but I wouldn't. I, I'd I'd feel somehow it'd be worse if I asked Him what to do and He told me and then I didn't do it. Then if I just didn't ask Him and did yeah. my own thing and assumed that's what God wanted. That's the kind of weird calculus we do in our head. But the truth is, if you humble yourself and say, God, tell me what you want to do, he might tell you something that's reasonable, acceptable to you. He might tell you something you don't want to do. But it's hard to ignore it once you hear it. It's hard to Mm -hmm. not do it. And once once you set out to do it and it works, well, then you sit back and tell yourself what a genius you were in the first place. And probably this was your idea. Who can remember whose idea it was to do it this way? (laughs) Whatever, you know. Uh, until things go wrong, then you get humble again, and now you're on the right side of that cycle. But, but trying to be the adult child of God, going to God as as a peer or something, or you know basically what He knows, and you're basically as as together and holy as He is, um, then you get in the, the the mindset where you don't respect God that way. And if you don't respect God, you're not going to respect any of the the spiritual leaders you have yeah. in your life. And you're not going to certainly not going to be respectful of your spouse or other people who are peers to you. Uh, so I think that that sets up a long term problem. I think you're absolutely right. I think you're, you both touched on it. Uh, this idea of a teammate thing. I think that's perfect. And I think it is a. We'll cl- I'll close up by saying, I think it's something we don't have a lot of headspace for as Christians because you'll you and you probably heard a lot of these from the pulpit. You'll either get people, you know. We're nothing, and we're the sand. God shakes off his sandals, and he, you know, we're, right. we're you know. Our, our good works are dirty rags to him, and they, they want there to be a massive amount of thing. Or as you're saying, it's God and I are pretty much, you know, he's got some ideas, and I got some ideas, and we throw They act that way. They say right, the first right, one, they act right, that right, way. Right, right. But th- as Jed's pointing out, this idea of um, a teammate, but with clearly defined roles, and someone being clearly in charge, yep. that's a lot. Now we're getting a lot closer to something we can look at, and getting a lot closer to Jed saying, acknowledging, and this is another adult thing that. I am only meant to do a small part of this, yep. but I will do that with kind of what I got. And yep. if you look for one place to start with, I want to start being more mature in my spirituality. I think that as we these two guys have lined out, that two-step process of I'm going to get ask the Lord what I need and then and listen the best I can and do the best I can to mm-hmm. actually effort that, That's mm-hmm. that will really get you on the right place and a lot more growth will, will occur from that. We're going to move on to our next question. This follows up on some of the uh, same same principles, maybe a little more specific. This came in anonymously to our Tumblr inbox, and it says, I'm pursuing a career in writing. I'm working on meeting people, sharing my work, making phone calls, sending emails, and getting myself, quote, unquote, out there. But pursuing my dreams is terrifying, even more terrifying than telling a boy I like him. <laughs> so I make excuses and procrastinate because I'm scared of not being good enough and don't want to humiliate myself. Meanwhile, almost nothing gets done. Satan is having a real fun time messing with me. Help me out here. Thanks so much. And Jed, you want to kick us off on this one? 
can. Well, here's the good news. I really appreciate your email. Um, I think you're actually already doing a whole lot of stuff right, yeah. um, which is really, really cool, and, mm-hmm. and we're really proud of you. Um, you haven't said what kind of writing you're wanting to do professionally, so it's it's a little bit hard to give super specific advice because if you want to be a poet, that's quite different from being a newspaper reporter. So, right, you know, right. but, uh, but it'd be pretty awesome if it wasn't. Absolutely. And now, a haiku about the federal trade deficit. That's right. right. But I, I can tell you a couple things that I, I know apply. The first is, if you're in a creative field, um, write a little bit every day no matter what. Uh, mm-hmm. Do not, do not, do not wait for the muses to strike you. Uh, mm-hmm. no, if, you if you're listening to this and you're interested in a creative field, do that thing every day. Um, even if it's for 10 minutes. But this this idea of, um, you know, I'm going to wait till I'm inspired and then do something, that doesn't work, just right. just so we're all clear on that, right every day. Um, and similar to that, uh, in terms of the hustle element, um, uh, send emails every day. Uh, call somebody every day that you're trying to make a connection with. Mm-hmm. Do that. Make that an everyday process. But that leads to the second thing, which I think is, is super, super important and, and a struggle for a lot of people, particularly a lot of young people, is the idea of paying your dues. Yep. Talk about that. Um, I can't. I'm not a professional writer, so I can't tell you exactly what the the dues would look like in your field. But I can tell you about a couple others. In um, in the studio recording world, if you want to work at like a music recording studio, this has changed some because the the economics changed a lot. But about 15 years ago, if you wanted to do that, here's how it worked: is you went to the cheapest, crappiest studio in your town, and you said. I will be here at 5 a.m. every day and mop the floors and take out the trash and clean the toilets if you'll just let me be here and just hang out as you're recording people. Right. That's actually how you started that process, no, no right. matter where you were. You didn't go anywhere and say, I'm a brilliant record producer, right. and you'd really be lucky to have me. There, right. there, there were jobs available, unpaid internships available for people that could take out the trash. There were no internships available for brilliant record producers. Right, right. Um, you know, similarly, if you want to be the, the work that all of us here in Chicago do, if you want to be a missionary, uh, one part of paying your dues is going to everyone you know and asking for money. Right. Um, hey, would you cut a check every month so that I can go and help people that don't have any money and don't have access to legal services and whatnot? Um, I guarantee you in your field there is an equivalent of paying dues. Uh, again, it, it would depend a lot on the kind of writing you want to do and whatnot, but there is a – the way you know you're paying dues is when you're being super humble and working super hard for very little money and doing something that the vast majority of your friends that also tell you they want to do this are not willing to do. Well, if I could add a fourth thing to that list, one of the ways you know you're in a dues-paying mode is if your main goal is to learn. Yes, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. We've, we, we talk about this a lot kind of amongst ourselves. We deal with uh, young people who want to achieve their dreams and do stuff, and that's great. We encourage them that. Um, Mark Zuckerberg has ruined this for all you people. Yep. Because there's apparently a generation of people who think that the, the way it's supposed to work is you have an amazing boundary-pushing, genre-defining idea, and then you just get a bunch of money and you're a billionaire and you're 25 – that's happened exactly once in the history of the world. Yeah. Um, most people, as Jed is saying, have to go somewhere and learn how this thing is done and then do yep. it. Yep. For a period of several, several years. The final thing that I'd encourage you to do, because I, I, I hear a lot of what you're saying you know, with identity stuff and I don't want to humiliate myself and, and all that makes perfect sense. And part of, it's not the whole of it, but part of the answer to that is take this gift that the Lord's giving you for writing and figure out how do I serve other people with that? Mm-hmm. How do I get myself out of the middle of that? That doesn't need to be the whole of your writing career. This is something, this is an extra thing you can do off to the side. But find a way to serve other people through writing. Um, again, 
what that would look like varies a lot depending on the kind of writing that you want to do. Mm-hmm. But I guarantee you there's a way to take the giftedness that you have for writing and serve other people with mm-hmm. it. And that's and I want to be I want to be clear here. I'm talking uh, about people that are currently doing without. That could be they're doing without friends, they're doing without money, they're doing without legal protection. But what the Bible would refer to as the least of these. How do I take this skill, this gift that God's given me, how do I turn around and bless the least of these with it? If you'll do that, A, um, it'll be more writing practice for you, which is good. B, you'll have a lot of fun with it. You, yeah. I think you'll find you'll enjoy that far more than any other writing that you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but C, that's going to help a whole lot with that identity level stuff. Yep. If, yep, you're, if, sure. if you're writing stuff and you're seeing it help set people free and help them experience God's love in some way and whatnot, um, that's going to help you relax a whole lot about your identity and your giftedness. I think it's exactly right. And Glenn, I think that's a perfect point to get you to pick up on. It's just pointing out here. So a lot of this has to do with audience mm-hmm. if, and your goals for response. If you're writing, yeah. you know, if you decide I'm going to write letters for to the people at the old folk home and really write them up and flower them and, you know, really, really write it and they're going to enjoy that or, prisoners or Jed saying, you know, I'm gonna help somebody who's getting a website ticked off, doesn't have the money to do the whole thing, whatever that is, you have a clear goal of here's who I'm trying to get to react to this. Here's the level for reaction I want from them. I think people who are chasing their dreams, particularly in creative fields, this really goes for a lot of other stuff. People who are just trying to set out to do something that they're wrapped up in. And that mm-hmm. so we're saying that could be writing, that could be music, that can that can and often is ministry, but that could be, you know, being a doctor, being a lawyer, something with their identity and there's a temptation to think, I will know I'm good at this when everyone agrees I'm good at it. Right. And in the arts, a, a way that everybody everybody in the world's life has changed by this thing. Yeah. I want to make, so what are some good goals for, you know, here's who we want this to be for, here's what we want out of that. Well, yes, I think, uh, you know, first and foremost, you don't put your self-worth in the hand of, uh, of complete strangers yeah. for them to, to give you that. Um, uh, secondly, uh, particularly if you're, as Joe is saying, in any kind of creative field, if you aren't absolutely blown away by your own stuff, it's time for you to do something else. You know what I'm saying? Sure. If you write a th- piece, yeah. Well, just to clarify what you, what you mean, because there's a deep yeah. wisdom there. I, w- I want these kids to, to get it. It's okay to say I'm a work in progress. I'm working on right. it. I'm I'm trying to get better. Right. But you need to feel like you have something to bring to the table that, with yes. time, you can develop. You can right. get to a place where it is something. Well, and specifically, I think to tie this into what Glenn's talking about—that's not putting strangers. You can't put something out into the world and then decide whether or not you think it's good based on the reviews. That's an, yeah, yes. that's insane. You have to, at some level, and Jed's saying it can be. You know, yeah, you know, I wrote a. I wrote a short story, and I don't think I got a, totally a hold of the third act, but I like the premise. I like this word choice. There's something about this. There's a I, thing in it I feel really good about. Yeah, so. I believe in this on some level. You can't say, I don't know, maybe, and then wait for a wave of adulation to convince you you're good yeah, at this. I think, yeah, and I think the reason why you're, you're pointing this out, and rightly so, is that's the myth that we tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. that, you know, This is what artists say is, oh, I called up my my producer and I said, you know, I got this idea. I don't know if it's great. It's probably it's just terrible. A, you know, with the, you know, okay. I played it for him with an attitude guitar and I had laryngitis, but he right. said, I think that's the best song I've ever heard. What they don't tell you is they spent 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, whatever, going to everyone they knew and holding a screenplay in their hands or a, a book or a, a CD or whatever and saying, this is going to make you a million 
$1,000 because it's amazing. Yeah. All I want to do is work my behind off to make this a success for you. Yeah. That's how they got there. Full stop. Yeah. The, the idea that, oh, I don't know, I feel a little oogie about this. Dude, you got to like it for me and for you. You have to have an attitude of you're, you feel sorry for this poor SOB that hasn't read this yet. Yeah, you're missing out, bro. I'm going to give this to you so you can be blown away. Yeah. Now, sure, you could go to an opposite extreme of being sort of head swell over that or just sort of a crazy uh, egomaniac about it. Uh, we're not talking about doing that either, but we are ha- talking about having an, an absolutely bulletproof confidence that this is good writing. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. is again, you know, you're you're at the beginning of your career, as Jed points out. You, you may be aware that um, that maybe it has some rough edges sure, that needs absolutely. whatever. But you know, that's what editors are for. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first draft handed in. Uh, of of most writers might look pretty much similar to what you're handing in to a, a potential literary agent or something mm-hmm. like that. So I think you know we have to uh, we have to totally get out of this this thing of other people providing validation, but also uh, motivation. You mm-hmm. know, when I, mm-hmm. I I went on a little bit of a diet a little while back here. And I told my wife uh, she wanted to know how much to talk to me about it because she could tell it was one of those things that I'm already irritated doing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she doesn't want to make it worse. I said, look, if you have advice for me on how to do that better or smarter, I want to hear all of that. Mm-hmm. But do not uh, come in and tell me I need to do more dieting mm-hmm. because – that's my responsibility to provide my own motivation. It's mm-hmm. not your job mm-hmm. to keep me inspired and motivated and whatever. That's what we were talking about in the last thing with the responsibilities. My responsibility to eat healthier. I wake up every day motivated to get that done. Mm-hmm. I don't always know how, so you can give me that. Well, this is the same thing. You're, you're, you're expressing to this person, I am motivated to learn. I'm motivated to grow. Mm-hmm. I'm motivated to improve. But I don't need you to tell me anything about this being good. I don't need you to give me any confidence that I'm a decent writer and I know what mm-hmm. I'm doing. I've mm-hmm. already made that decision, and I'm already going out uh, on that basis. Uh, and uh, one of the last things I would point out there is that this stuff has its uh, – both cowardice and boldness have a momentum all their own. Mm-hmm. That, that if you if you keep not confronting and keep not confronting like we were talking about on the previous question – Eventually, you just grind to a halt in that, you know, mm-hmm. and and if you find yourself in a situation where you know you need to take a chance and you need to send off this thing and you need to make this phone call or whatever, the more that you do that, yeah, at first it's really, really hard, but little by little it gets easier and easier and easier because you just have a momentum behind mm-hmm. it and pretty soon mm-hmm. you don't even think about it. It's not even a question. You're already in the motion of doing it before you even... Ask yourself whether you should be nervous about it or mm-hmm. whatever. So I think th- that's the thing I would tell you is that, g- that God gives us that courage as we go through these things, and, and he'll give it to you. Absolutely. I think uh, I would close out on this by tying this into um, if you're not in the creative field, a lot of this kind of goes for you as well. It just ties in a different way. Whenever you're pursuing something in, that you want to do, you want to be a big next step, um, this person, you know, they mentioned their question, which is absolutely true. I think Satan's having a real fun time messing with me about this. That's absolutely true. That'll mm-hmm. happen uh, if you're just interviewing for jobs or trying to get into a grad school program or whatever it is, or, you know, pitching your writing. So one of the best things you can do for that, as we pointed out here, is have smaller 
measurable signposts that you can feel good about crossing mm-hmm. as Jed pointed out. And I, w- I will qualify a couple things you're saying here. Kind of talked about, you know, when Glenn says you need to love it, he means you need to believe in what you put out here. You don't have to think mm. nobody thinks everything they do is the best thing they've ever done. And that's not that we're talking about, but as he's saying, you got to believe it here. And when Jed says you need to write every day, work every day, send emails over 10 emails every day, that's absolutely true. It is okay to take a day off every of week. Course. Of we're course. Ta- we're, you know, we're, we're kind of, uh, we're kind of uh, all or nothing people. So we yeah. tend to go that way. But all that to say, if your goal is I'm going to pitch, 10 websites, this piece I wrote every Mm -hmm. for four days this week. Um, At the end of that, even if they all reject you, which that's your nightmare, if you can get yourself in the headspace saying, look, the thing, the courageous step I decided I was going to take and believing in my writing was sending this to people. There's more websites. We can do that. That makes you, it's, you're, you're always going to get messed with with discouragement, but that gets you pretty close to discouragement proof when you can get on the same page with the Lord saying, here's what I'm going to do. And if I do it, that's success, mm-hmm. and anything else I have coming to me is gravy on top of that, right. which brings us to the very important point of a day job. Yeah. If you're not paying yep. your bills as a writer, there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't make you not writer. If your name isn't uh, J.K. Rowling or Stephen King, you're probably not paying your bills as a writer. That's right. Yeah. But if you can get to a place where you can wait tables or teach school or whatever and have your bills paid and then focus on the writing, that takes a lot of pressure off. It's worth noting because – very few people that are not kind of entertainment industry professionals, very few people are, are aware of this. Um, the number of people that in any creative field, music, writing, film, whatever, who make their sole living from that field is shockingly low. Yeah. Like crazy, crazy low. Um, whatever, you know, you, you think about, yeah, but surely, you know, the guy with the, you know, the, won the big award and whatnot. Nope. There are all kinds of people out there who have won huge awards in every field you can imagine, working a day job, making 90% of their income from that day job. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Even if that's a day job within the thing, even if the guy who is a singer-songwriter makes his money as a uh, mix engineer or you know the person who does their own writing on the side makes their money as an editor at a thing, Yeah, almost everybody in creative fields that you haven't heard of has a job yeah. outside of this thing. Important to remember, but as we say, you know, when you're doing anything that has creative field, not creative field, when you're going to get your identity – in that, which is fine. That's, you know, you're supposed to have pride in your work and that'd be a part of yourself. But if you can uh, set the correct parameters, you can make your, you can make yourself a lot less prone to discouragement on that. All right. We're going to go to our final question here. It came in to Glenn's blog. It's very popular. Really? Really quite popular. I, I hadn't heard that. Really? Well, I, I always assumed it was true. Sure. Uh, and I've been saying it. Yeah, you say it a lot. Do you have some kind of weird earplug thing where you can't? Yeah, I just you know not, I'm just not always uh, confident that it's, it's just act- second nature. You're not even listening when you say. Yeah, it now. it's quite sure. popular. Sure, sure. Well, it is quite popular because Glenn answers the big questions. We claim in this podcast to get the big questions, and we do sometimes. Glenn has brought us a doozy. <laughs> yes. This person writes into Glenn's blog and says very simply... Do we, do we have extra tape in the machine for this yes, one? Yes, we might have to buy a secondary hard drive here. In your opinion, what single thing would most improve race relations? Yeah. Well, I, I let me try and illustrate that uh, my, my answer to that question with a very brief story. I was talking to uh, a, a man who's very well known in the city of Chicago for his work with... Uh, former uh, inmates and 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 addicts, and uh, he had a, a 
like I said, a, a, the, he was the kind of guy that would get invited to all the meetings, you know, because he's well known. And uh, he was telling me about how he had gone earlier in the day to a conference, and the conference had been sponsored by a uh, predominantly white uh, a suburban church, and there were several other suburban churches that were invited there, and there were a handful of uh, leaders like uh, this guy I'm talking to from the inner city. And the theme of the conference, or the theme of the, the little get-together, was uh, how can we have more unity between uh, the African-American church and uh, the predominantly white suburban churches. And uh, and he, one of the speakers stood up and said, you know, we need to build a bridge between these two communities. And um, uh, and this fellow was standing at our program, which is also called The Bridge, and he kind of thought that was a, a funny funny question to be asking off of that. But he, but he asked, you know, uh, what did I think of that situation? And I said, well, I think... Um, uh, if I was in that situation, I would tell him, there already is a bridge. We've already been waiting halfway for you. And if you're thinking of coming over, bring your money with you. Uh, because uh, uh, that's the that's the problem, is the money. Yeah. Uh, let's not be coy about it. You, th- it is a big question. This is a real answer. The money is the problem. The racism, of course, is the is the deeper cause, but the the nature of that problem is financial. Uh, I I say the same thing every single time I'm invited to speak to seminarians. Uh, it it gets me out of a lot of second gigs at uh, talking to seminarians, but I always say the same thing. Uh, you belong to a denomination where they put money, uh, they pass the plate on on Sunday, and they put money in that plate. And they take that money, and that church keeps the vast, overwhelming sum of that money for themselves. Yep. Because you belong to a denomination that has that particular system, as most do, because of that, this means you will be rewarded for choosing to minister to rich people, and you will be punished for choosing to minister to poor people. And... As you leave this place and go out into the world and become pastors, you will either reap the benefits of that or you will be dis, uh, disadvantaged because of that system. It's wrong. It's bad. It's, yeah. it's unacceptable. Uh, and I'm talking about rural churches that are poor, too. Again, it's not just a race problem there. But uh, the idea that, you know, here in Chicago, you can have a Baptist congregation on the south side of Chicago that can't keep the lights on, and a Baptist congregation out in the suburbs in the same denomination that's putting up giant video screens mm. and building extra annexes on the thing. Well, you've got to have another annex, please. I mean, you know. So there's, there's an economic disparity there. Uh, and uh, let's also be honest about this. Uh, we, we work with a lot of inner-city African-American churches and a lot of inner-city Latino churches. They do better. Yep. They do better at everything, everything. They p- Preaching, youth ministry, praise and worship isn't even close. You name it. They do it better, and they know that. And, we, and I think most people in the suburbs know that too. You know, they don't want to think about it, but they, you, know, you say, if, the, if I were listening to a praise and worship service in an African-American church, it probably would get down a, a lot more than this one does. 
I, you know, the preaching would probably be a bit more punchy and lively and, and to the point than this one is about this dude droning on about the book yeah. of Ecclesiastes or whatever it is. So um, uh, when you're making a whole lot less money and getting a whole lot less respect when you're doing a better job, that's going to sow bitterness uh, within the church. The church is the only group that has a mandate to do something about this. The world doesn't have a mandate to do this. God's put it on our our heart. He says uh, in the Bible that there should be economic equality between churches. We're not working on that at all. There's no plan on, on the books for how to achieve that. Um, so I think that's, first and foremost, uh, uh, the the church has a mandate to do something about that. If they were doing that, if if they said a problem for Christians in the African American community is is a problem for us as Christians in any other community, yeah. then the nature of all these problems would be yeah. uh, unbelievably different. But I'll let Jed get in there, and I'll I'll share some other things if we have time. Well, I think it's absolutely right, and I think uh, it's a great point for Jed to pick up on. I think when we hear something like race relations, there is a, uh, especially with some of our younger folks, some of them are more online uh Folks, people, there's an idea that this is primarily a a problem of love. Sure. That this is I, – I, I've heard you, we're in the middle of a nigh-interminable campaign season here in the United States, which, due to comments by a certain orange gentleman, has uh, taken on quite a racial element. Mm-hmm. And you'll hear a lot about, well, I mean, but so-and-so doesn't hate these people, or they don't mm-hmm. teach hate and all that mm-hmm. stuff. But in, in particularly in America, but this is true in essentially every, every country – this podcast goes out into racial relations have an economic aspect, as Clint mm-hmm. is pointing to. They have a social aspect, mm-hmm. as uh, we've talked about. And while racial relations are in some ways addressed in the Bible, there are certainly races, and God wants them to deal with certain things. Some of that's some Old Testament stuff that's uh, kind of the Jewish race and how they report to non-Jewish people, which doesn't really apply to us. But one thing that the Bible is very clear about is how to deal with economic injustice and social injustice. Jed, maybe you can walk us through why that is, A, the place to start, and B, what it says about that. Oh, absolutely. Um, Your question, uh, to quote, what single thing would most improve race relations? I'm going to agree with Glenn. Um, It it all boils down to uh, money. Um, And it's the exact thing that that Scripture points to on basically every page, which is justice for the poor. Yeah. I'm going to read you. I wrote down three things. I'll just read them to you verbatim. But there's, I want you to pay attention to the word functional because we're going to get into that. It's super important. So justice for the poor means functional equal protection under the law. It means functional equal access to opportunities for self-betterment. And it means functional access to honest work for a fair and living wage. All right, here's why that word functional is so important. One form of um, injustice against the poor that goes on certainly in the United States, and I strongly suspect a lot of other places, is um, we, in theory, we, ha- we had a political candidate actually the last election cycle who said, hey, y'all, we've got a safety net for the poor. Right, we, right. We've got one. It's, right. it's totally there. Yeah. So no worries. <laughs> and here's the thing about it is it is there in theory. Right. In theory, if you look at the laws on the books, it it looks like we probably do have a safety net for poor people. Functionally speaking, it doesn't quite work out that way. Uh, You have almost certainly in your life known people who have made some sort of comment of, well, you know what I would do? I'd just get a job. If I was having a rough time, I just, you know, right. I just work hard right. like a man. Right. You may have said those things. Right. Here's here's what 
um, all of us on this podcast want you to know about that. Functionally speaking, it's not that easy. Right. If you live on the south side of Chicago, um, I'm just going to just pick a neighborhood at random, Englewood, for example, your ability, even saying you don't have any form of criminal record, we'll leave that out, your ability to get a job that pays you a fair and living wage where you have an opportunity to advance and grow and build a career out of it is essentially zero. Right. It's It takes a lot of work. Well, literally studies have been done where um, they will – uh, the people conducting the study will submit two job applications with identical credentials, and but have a stereotypically uh, Caucasian name on one and a stereotypically African American name on the other. And the callback rate for the white people's name was something like ten times higher. Yeah, right. you know, uh, we're talking about uh, you know equal protection under the law. We're we work with prisoners. We work with people that have recently got out of jail. Um, there, I'm just telling you from personal experience doing this work for a long time. There are two legal systems in the United States of America. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the legal system for white people with money. And then there's a legal system for everybody else. Well, right. j- to an example of that, Jed and I were uh, uh, having a meeting with someone a couple weeks ago, and their roommate happened to be there who is a lawyer. Yeah. And we were uh, kind of talking about such things. And uh, we were mentioning that we, we do a chapel service in Cook County Jail, and we have been for a couple of years now. And Glenn and Jed have been doing uh, different chapel services kind of over a long stretch period going back. But if you, if you live in a place that has a county jail, which you need to know in the legal system, is that is almost all people who are awaiting trial. Yes. Right. So these people have not been convicted of anything. Right, that's they, right. And of course, apparently, as Jed's saying, in theory, under, the presumption of, under U.S. law, they have the presumption of innocence. Yes. Uh, what we know is we know plenty of people who have been in Cook County Jail uh, for going on two or three years. Yeah, awaiting right. trial. Awaiting trial. These are men who have not been convicted of anything who are just there. Mm-hmm. And yep. our uh, lawyer friend is pointing out that this one of the things, legal advice, that sounds like a huckster thing, it's actually true, is people giving legal advice will tell you um, credit cards, second mortgage, whatever it is, you need to be able to hire a lawyer, lawyer, not a yep. public defender, and post bail. Because mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that, one of the reasons our guys are in there for so long is there's a thing called a continuance, yep. which is basically one one side of the trial and the other, the, the prosecution defense will come to the judge and say, I, we're supposed to do the thing today. We need some time to get these, uh, these. we need more time to do more interviews. We need time to gather more evidence. So can we just do this next week? Mm-hmm. 95% of the time, the judge says, sure, get your ducks in a row. And then that person, if they can't, haven't, bailed out they go back to j- they just go right. back to jail yeah. um and our lawyer friend is pointing out that as soon as you post bail they're ready to go to trial now yeah right, right, right. they are essentially there's a there's an that's just one small example of a entirely extrajudicial holding someone right. in a jail for years as they've not been convicted of anything yeah. and that doesn't happen to people with the mo- money to hire a lawyer exactly yeah. right so that all brings us back to this idea of functional um, we, we have to work for functional justice for the poor. It's, it's not enough that we have theoretical justice for the poor, mm-hmm. which is actually most of, of what suburban people end up talking about. The, the, the quick gut check gauge is functional justice for the poor means however easy it is for you living in a nice suburb to go get a part-time job as a teenager at the mall. It's exactly that same level of ease for a kid mm-hmm. from the inner city mm-hmm. to go get that same kind of job. Right. That's functional justice for the poor. Um, however easy it is for you to get admitted to a college and then get financial aid to be able to go to that college, it's functionally speaking exactly as easy for that mm-hmm. kid from the inner city to do the exact same thing. Right. What I can tell you is in the United States of America, it's not close. Right. On any metric you can think of, it's, right. it's right. nowhere close to equal. But a big part of what... Um, 
uh, keeps it that way is people with a lot of money and who hold elected office insisting we have a safety net, y'all. Right. We, we've got laws on the books to fix all of this, mm-hmm. which is a willful lie against the fact that none of it actually works out that way. Right. Functionally speaking, none of it processes that way. So if you want to help racial relations work for not theoretical justice for the poor, work for functional justice for the mm-hmm. poor. Yeah, absolutely. I think that really does tie into the I, I will answer the question. I mean, your opinion, what's the single most important thing to improve race relations. Um, and that would be a basic sense of empathy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, empathy, the, by the clinical definition of being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Um, that is really the thing that a lot of this kind of rhetoric lacks, both yes. from a political end and from a Christian end, which has been infected might be the right word mm-hmm. by sure. a certain that, that school of political thought, which we won't, we don't get into politics, but you can guess which one I'm talking about and whether or not I agree with it. But there's a, a functional idea of, it really does. It's, it's very internet-y, but it's it's the right word for this. An acknowledgement of privilege goes a long way. Yes, mm-hmm. it does. And sure. I don't I don't mean ap- openly apologizing to other people who approach whatever, but I mean acknowledging in yourself as someone uh, on the internet. You're at some point put it, and I think this is the truest thing I've ever heard. Be- life as a white male is like playing a video game on easy mode. Yeah. Right. It's not that it's necessarily hard. I know you work hard. I yeah, know right. you do, dear listener. You can put away your email. I know you worked hard and your father worked hard. Right, right. But everything about your life would have been harder if you were a woman of color. That's yeah. right. That's just statistically true. That's right. And you don't need to credit that. If you can accept that, onboard that as a white person, and not go into – not be tempted to take that into defensiveness about yourself. I work right, hard. Right. Or shame of, oh, I guess I could – you're saying I'm not a good person or whatever. If you can just accept that and then realize that there may be some small thing you can do, I think – and I'll close out on this. I think one of the things we would all tell you is do something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As we said about other stuff on the show before, something is always better than nothing. Yeah, no doubt. Especially if you keep it simple. As we talk about, there are things you can, uh, if, you, if you say, I had no idea where to start, I, but I make a decent living and I could tr- carve off 20 bucks a month for a, a ministry or an inner city church or a legal aid fund or whatever or a, an after school program, great. You know, I could volunteer at the Boys and Girls Club and do the thing, great. Yep. Any, any improvement is improvement. Yep. And as we've all learned, and I've been learning because I came on the staff more recently, been kind of learning on a steep learning curve. The more you are willing to look at this kind of thing, the bad news is you're going to see it everywhere. Yeah. Before I came on this job, I lived in suburban Tennessee. I, um, I was aware, I have a certain, again, certain political bent, but I w- would say, would have said, I am aware of discrepancies in things like economics and justice. And once I started meeting people who had been locked up for the things they've been locked up at, I realized I was aware of it. I like 100. I saw the tip of that iceberg. Right. You didn't see the degree of it. Yeah. Didn't see the gr- degree, the severity, the um, the just totality of it. Mm-hmm. But so now as we, we are kind of through the looking glass when you st- really start to look at this stuff. But that is the good news because you also see an infinite plethora of ways you can help. Because mm-hmm. when you only see something like this as a theoretical problem, theoretical problems for the most part can only be solved in totality. If the, there's a theoretical problem that race relations in this con- in whatever country you're in is busted, then you you find yourself sitting around reading and thinking, or at least I would find myself this, my position anyone else, of how do we solve the problem of race relations? Right. That's not the right question. That's that's not a good question. 
the right question is, what can I do to make somebody help somebody who is the least of these? And if you're someone who lives in an area where there's only white people, that's cool. There are poor people. Yeah. Right. Jesus talks about just for ever saying in, in particularly in America, but in most countries, um, justice for the poor will have on some level, a, uh, racial bent. It doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily have to. Mm-hmm. And for helping poor people of your same color, that counts. Yep. Sure, That's yeah. fine. But I think that, uh, do something as opposed to nothing is always a good place to say. And Glenn, you want to close us out on this? Yeah, just one quick thought to build on what you're saying. Really, what you're talking about is thinking of this as an individual thing. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things we would do on occasion uh, when I worked for previous ministries, we would take guys from the city out to suburban churches, give pre- presentations on the ministry. And the people in these suburban churches would say, this guy is great. I mean, if we had more guys like him in the inner city, I mean, we wouldn't have any of these problems. And you say... They're all like that. I picked two guys at random to come. They were the two guys that were hanging out in the neighborhood when I drove through. Yeah. They're all like this. This is what we're talking about. But they, they, here's the thing is I think off of what Matt is saying is when you hear it on the news, it's always a group. These mm-hmm. super predators. It's, it's, it's yeah. super predators. It's blacks. It's, it's Latinos. A, it's a statistic it's, and a, as you've mentioned before, when someone wanted to put you on the news that you had to turn them down, it is a picture of young men of color in shadow yeah, stand, congregating on a street corner who knows what they're doing. That's right. You know, there's, it's not yeah, a person with a story. It's not a person with a story. It's a group. It's a, it's, mm-hmm. We're talking about black people. We're talking about Latinos. We're talking about Muslims. We're talking about immigrants. We're talking about Republicans. We're talking about Democrats. It's always a group. You know, yeah. Pick a team mm-hmm. and then hate the other side and whatever it is and, and lump them all together and treat them all whatever and round them all up and, or put them, lock them up and be macho at them or and, and use the way that a small minority of them might act as an excuse to mistreat all of them. That's right. But even the most rabidly, you know, hateful of those people, if if you sat them down at, at this table with one of our guys from the neighborhood, they'd say, well, this guy's great. Yeah. Sure. There would, it's only when you lump everyone together and let someone tell you what that lump together group does or thinks that you get sort of wound up in all this. Absolutely, and I'll, I'll close out your closing out by a recent example of this. Um, there are a lot of uh, businesses, particularly, again, I can only speak to the U.S. because I don't know about the international, but who have just have a blanket policy of not hiring people with felony convictions. We happen to know some people who are business owners or have some hiring stuff, and once you sit them down with our guys and say, this guy's great. Yeah, I'd take 100 just like him. He's got, he's got a work ethic. He wants to prove it. He wants to be here. And again, you say they're all like that. And, but once they meet someone right. who they can talk to, that blows their whole thing away. But when they can put it a category of people with felony convictions are like this or not like that. So anything you can do to get with a person one-on-one, get other people seeing things that way. Yeah, It sounds pretty hippy-dippy, and maybe it is. That's really where this kind of stuff really starts off. Absolutely right. All right. Thanks for your questions. If you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com, thebridgechicago.tumblr.com. Remember, you can always sign up for Bridgebox and check out the cool stuff we have for there, missionusa.com slash bridgebox. Even if you're not ready to sign up, if you hit over there, you can get some free downloads. As a matter of fact, we're going to take out the song this week from this month's Bridgebox since you're missing your, a day, your weekly dose of Lee this week. We're going to give you this is uh, actually a very cool collaboration because it's Lee uh, performing a song that Jed wrote for the middle of the bridge called You've Made Up Your Mind. That's from our August edition of Bridgebox. If you want to get a downloadable MP3, which stands for something something three format, uh, you can do that. MissionUSA.com slash Bridgebox. Take out that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. 
God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. To say that podcast is safe to marry Matt now. Jed and I are totally fixed. <laughs> when I mess things up, it's easy to think that you love me less. But your love for me is a choice you've made where you see me and you say yes. Made up your mind, help me do the same.